You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Monster House presents. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. When you think of fictional towns and stories and novels, I'm sure many come to mind. Lovecraft had Arkham and Dunwich. Stephen King invented Derry and Castle Rock. Faulkner had a whole Mississippi County in his Yachnapatafa tales. And Charles Dickens had Mudfog. I'd never heard of the place, but in preparing for this interview, I did a brief visit, and I will be going back for a more thorough tour because it's quite a peculiar town, and we'll hear more about that in our show. If you only know Dickens' ghostly writing from A Christmas Carol, you might be surprised that the man who gave us Oliver Twist and Great Expectations also wrote many a spooky story and inspired some of the greatest ghost story writers in English lit. The Signalman is such a tale. It's sort of a ghost story, but perhaps it's something else. Regardless, it's a tale of mystery with intriguing details that seem to be tied to some experience from Dickens' own life. The story was published in 1866, and a year before that, Dickens was on a train that had a terrible crash which killed several and injured many. The experience was said to have rattled him for the last years of his life, and I needn't go into details on why. Your imagination's surely up to the task. But you may hear more about The Signalman before this year is out. But here we are in this weird gap between Halloween and Christmas, two holidays indelibly connected with ghost tales, and perhaps no single person did more to connect Christmas with ghosts than Charles Dickens with his A Christmas Carol. It's hard to believe, but much of what we think of as modern Christmas was invented in the past century and a half, and Dickens' work cemented a lot of that imagery in the mind of English readers around the world. 
But there's plenty more ghosts and weirdness in his work, and if you check the show notes, you'll find links to lots of free reading. Today we're talking with Dr. Liz Savage, an academic whose work is focused on Charles Dickens, but also the uncanny, the unusual, and harder to categorize things like steampunk. And we're going to be discussing the ways that Charles Dickens' work overlaps with the paranormal, the ghostly, the weird, and she'll also argue that one can view his work with a cryptozoological lens. Liz works with the Cambridge University Library and will be participating in the International Institute of English Studies Dickens Day event on November 26th, 2022. Welcome to Monster Talk. Thank you. Today, we're going to talk about Charles Dickens. And I, it's fun because I, uh, I'm a longtime fan of certain works of Dickens, but I'm, you know, he's written a lot more than I've read. Yeah, yeah. I think there is always that... Um weird thing where it's taught so so much in in high school and whatnot that it turns a lot of people off <laughs> um uh, like shakespeare yeah i think it it becomes you know it, it might you, you read the wrong text and then you just never want to pick up dickens again uh sure but it, i mean i i had a different experience so well i i I know everybody knows a Christmas Carol, which has ghosts, <laughs> but I, I also I love the ghost story, the Signalman, and the sort of oh, yeah, uh, the yeah. backstory to that one, which we may get into. But I, I guess my question to start out with is: How often does uh, weird or quasi paranormal stuff show up in Dickens' work? Because it's certainly more than I expected. Oh, it's one of those things that um, you tend to sometimes tends to be skipped over um, or maybe not skipped over, but um, certainly not focused on in earlier Dickens studies, like when you're in high school or even undergrad. So it, it comes up a lot and more more than you think. Um, I mean, right up into Edwin Drood, you're having that kind of eerie ghost vibe, but also just the descriptions of various characters can get into that uncanny realm which is kind of what my research focuses on if we're talking just ghosts I mean you've got various Christmas stories that he wrote um and um but then you also have weird things like spontaneous combustion um some really good thriller moments um especially I my, my favorite is Bleak House so I apologize if I <laughs> somehow make everything about Bleak House but um <laughs> But you get these these really great, just almost sci-fi descriptions of characters um, that you wouldn't really expect um, and kind of surprise you, I think, um, if you're not reading Dickens, you know, regularly. It's kind of like, oh, I didn't know he wrote like that. And yeah. um, like just the other day, I was looking through Bleak House and I was reading the end of one of the one of a one of a very uh, what should I call it a important chapter to uh, save spoilers from a 1850s novel um, <laughs> and it was just it was so well written. Time. It was, I mean it's so instrumental to the novel and it was just so creepy when I re read it and I just for, you almost forget I think because you you there is that reputation that Dickens holds as the Victorian sort of I don't, I don't want to say gentleman, but kind of, you know, you don't expect it out of a Victorian classic, I guess. Sure, sure. Yeah. And you answered our next question, which was about Dickens and whether he 
covered spontaneous human combustion or not. And that was in Bleak House too, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It happens about midway through the novel, I think. Uh, it happens to a character named Crooks, I believe. And yes, it's spontaneous human combustion. <laughs> a quick insert about spontaneous human combustion. This is a topic which I assume many listeners will be familiar with, but which we've never covered on the show. There have been many peculiar fire-related deaths where people find bodies that are almost entirely consumed by fire, but where perhaps a foot or an arm will remain unburned, and the surrounding room will be largely unharmed, as though the person just went up in a puff of flame and smoke. The literature on this is creepy, and I certainly grew up with an unwarranted fear of succumbing to just such a demise. Like any phenomena, the items that fit within the category often have a variety of causes, but the majority of the cases usually involve enough elements that we can exclude supernatural. Classically, in order to have a fire, you need three legs of the fire triangle, heat, oxygen, and fuel. What has been surmised by forensic fire researchers who look into cases like this is that often people who die in alleged spontaneous human combustion cases are in some way incapacitated by a fall where they strike their heads, or by alcohol or perhaps drugs. A heat source is usually present, such as a lit cigarette or a fireplace, and usually the victims have plenty of body fat. And when you combine these elements, you have everything to explain at least a big chunk of these SHC cases. There's a scientifically reproducible scenario that relies on something called the wick effect. If a heat source is applied to fat and skin and clothing, a fire can get going which will render the human body fat into a slow-burning fuel and the corpse will literally just disappear into soot and charred fat like a giant human candle. Evidence suggests that the often unconscious victims will die of smoke inhalation if they haven't already stopped breathing for some other reason. If nothing interrupts the process, it just keeps going until the fuel runs out and you end up with this weird and disturbing crime scene imagery that makes this the hallmark of most books on weird phenomena. I'll put a link in the show notes to a couple of articles by Joe Nickel and John Fisher that examine this creepy but largely scientifically explained occurrence. Uh, do we have any idea of why he wrote about this? Uh, was he just fascinated with this topic or had he had some kind of personal experience um, with that, uh, he, those claims? He does have um, the typing you hear is me looking up because there is a, a note that Dickens includes about spontaneous um, human combustion at the start of, um, I think, the serial um, when it was serially published. There is, um, okay. if you, what you hear in the background is my dog barking because it's bonfire night here. And so there's fireworks going off and my dog is kind of losing his mind. Sure, sure. I, we actually, my, my, uh, my, my daughter came running downstairs to tell me this morning, she, today's the day, today's the yeah. day that Marty McFly goes back to in 1955 and back to the future. And I was like, really? And how do you remember today? And she, and she was like, "This is some kind of a joke, isn't it?" It totally is. It's like, it's like, it's like. So I had to explain to her Guy Fox and the the gunpowder plot and all that stuff. So yeah. much yeah. fun, much fun was I had. Completely forgotten about it. Um, and then my husband said, "Oh, you better go get the Thunder shirt." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And the th it's what, yeah, it's what we put on the dog to make him calm down. And he's like, "It's oh, it's I bonfire see. night," and I was like, "Oh no." So what he did was, um, this happened, 
you know, he got a bit of backlash from it. And as it was being published serially, he was able to kind of put in a response. And he pretty much said, there are mysteries we can't account for. So I think it's, it is it is definitely one of those things in the 19th century, Bleak House being 1850s, uh, you're kind of on this precipice of change, something that I think um, we can really relate to now where technology is advancing so much, our understanding of science and how how things you know just work. I mean, if you if you look at it from the year 1800, say in Jane Austeny kind of I guess Bridgerton, if you will, type setting to the late 1800s, 1900s to the it's a completely different world. And so I think what we do see in Dickens that lends itself to the spontaneous combustion thing is that is this kind of curiosity. Um, or this kind of latching on to new ideas, but also questioning older ones. But it is like, it is that kind of period. I focused a lot on technology in my earlier research, and it just reminded me so much of what we are experiencing today of just rapid progress. I mean, in the 19th century, you just had cities sprouting up. Um, you had trains, you had factories, machinery, all of this stuff that was just invading life and changing it completely. And I feel like we're kind of experiencing that now with, you know, with um, with computers and the evolution of the iPhone, pretty much. is just, it's shocking mm-hmm. how quickly it happens. You know, Dickens kind of playing into that uncertainty and also just having a bit of fun because he, he was like that. <laughs> In preparing for this episode, I did, I did not get to go read back through a lot of the Dickens story, which would have been probably better preparation, but I did a lot of meta reading. <laughs> and one of the things I came across was the assertion that Dickens was influenced strongly by Washington Irving, but mm. then, then, then Dickens' work went on to influence Edgar Allan Poe. Yes. Who in turn went back to influence people like M.R. James. Yeah. And some of the Victorian ghost. So it's like, there seems to be a really interesting transatlantic uh, literary information swap. Mm. And, yeah. And, and it's happening simultaneous with the rise of spiritualism as a religious mm-hmm. movement, which had a sort of separate evolutions in England than it did in America. But I, I, I guess I'm wondering... Does Dickens' turn towards the supernatural correspond with the rise of spiritualism, or is that just coincidental, or is it related, or do you? Do you... Well, spiritualism. What we think of spiritualism, I'm I'm pretty sure if I've got my history correct, <laughs> um, started mostly with the Fox sisters. Right, which uh, I think was 1840s. Yes. I think. Yeah. So there yes. is a a bit of that, and I think um, there's certainly. Um, you know, those early kind of rumblings of spiritualism in, in, in the Victorian period, especially when you get to the 1870s and you have Darwin and everything. I think that is, you know, just such a monumental moment of what is a human? What are we? Where do we fall in this, you know, in the universe? And that kind of sets, you know, religion kind of on a tailspin and, you know, how we digest who we are. So I think there's definitely feeling of uh, exchange in Dickens we see one of the things that I focused on in my um, in my PhD thesis was the 
what what felt to me like a um, spectrum of characters that where his protagonist kind of started out in his early work as very mechanical, very robotic almost, especially in the language he used. He Nell in the old curiosity shop is referred to as a waxwork child. And but as we get into his later novels, that kind of switches um, and suddenly it's the protagonists are more animalistic and you have Eugene Rayburn and our mutual friend saying, you, you know, comparing himself to a sheep, um, saying, you know, man as I am, mutton as you are, and quote unquote villain of the story um, is far more mechanical. And I think, I think that kind of shows how his concept of the human is changing, I guess, like, rather than being like nuts and bolts, suddenly we're becoming this more nebulous thing, maybe we're more related to the, the animals around us than you know, we previously thought I'm putting words in Dickens' mouth there, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I do think there is there is that very interesting shift, mm-hmm. and I think I wouldn't put it past it to be because of such a shift in um, perceptions of religion. And I mean, he was also friends with people like Wilkie Collins, who was living a completely bohemian lifestyle. Um, and I think, you know, Dickens was rather trapped in you know, the the Victorian setting in that he marketed himself a certain way and he couldn't really change that. <laughs> that, that was all very interesting. But I, I want to ask you about the this cryptid, uh, yes. Dickens' cryptid. So what is this cryptid and in which tale? It's not something super specific. It kind of stems out of Mudfog, which is a very early um, Dickens writing. Um, it was written alongside Oliver Twist um, in Bentley's Miscellany. It, it originally, Oliver Twist was part of Mudfog, and then Dickens later oh. edited Yeah, it, it, the first line of Oliver Twist was changed um, from its serialized version to its printed version, or its like compiled version. Um, Oliver was originally from Mudfog, um, but that was changed to read a town of not worth mentioning or something. Tell <laughs> 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 me how you really feel. Um, but it, it stems out of that uh, because mostly because the so the Mudfog papers, the first one's just a story about a, a mayor. The second and third one are parodies of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, which was a quite a new thing, and they would publish very, you know, earnest, you know, reports about various different discoveries. And so this kind of lends on to the the science and spiritualism um, side of things. But um, so he wrote these two parody reports from the Mudfog Association for the Advancement of Everything. (laughs) I have said that so many times, I don't trip over it anymore. And it's just it's 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 written in the style of reports, but with just ridiculous things like the um, like a a train that is like part of a pocket watch that you would put onto your shoes and it would take you different places. And if you wanted to, if, if several people want to go to one place, they could join arms and just be. Yeah, led through the sewers. The one I focused on mostly was the. Um, Automaton City, 
that he created that actually has an illustration for it um, by George Crookshank, where you get, can see Dickensian robots. And um, it was kind of like a crazy moment when I saw that. Wow, this is more steampunk I, than I expected. Yeah, he did yeah. everything. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, and so it's it's this city of robots, pretty much built for um, the entertainment of young gentlemen. Uh, and they pretty much it's just a free for all. They can beat up people, and the robots will respond and uh, shrieks, and you know, they can dismantle them. They can, it's Westworld. Pretty much, yeah, it is. It's Westworld. <laughs> wow. So really, my 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 focusing on like the uncanny and the weird and really stemmed from mud fog and recently i decided to you know kind of bend that into cryptozoology because I, it's funny because i was literally just came up on twitter <laughs> i was just having a conversation with um a few other academics and they were talking about oh do you think um do you think you could say that dickens has moments where there's like, or, or you could fit a UFO reading into Dickens. And I was like, well, there's this part in Mudfog where a pug dog gets dissected. And I bet you could do it like an alien abduction reading of it. Because he does do this really weird thing where right after the pug dog is dissected, um, it suddenly, this, the owner comes, you know, running in and they said, oh, well, the pug dog was... Uh, was supposed to be in place of like her lost lover or something and that it bore a striking resemblance to him and I was like oh I wonder if you could read that it you know in a, a UFO abduction way and that kind of got me on the whole <laughs> monster thing that is so um, that's such a weird quit the only thing I read in Mudfog to prepare for this episode mm -hmm. was the section on that dog and the so I know exactly the section you're talking about Yep. And it freaked me out because I had just read Zelazny's A Night in Lonesome October, which has a whole uh -huh. section where one of the main characters is a dog who gets mm -hmm. captured by vivisectionists in the 1880s. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was thinking, what are the odds of vivisection coming up twice <laughs> in like a month of reading, like randomly, just reading random things? And it's like, oh, that is weird. That is very <laughs> yeah. odd. It's very odd. I don't know how mm -hmm. common vivisection was in, in English lit back then, but... Uh, it, I mean, obviously, it, it it had a big. And by the way, for listeners, if you don't know vivisection, this was a sort of scientific movement where people were yeah. studying animals while doing surgery on them while they had no anesthetic. Let me just say it that way. <laughs> and it led directly to things like uh, the island of Dr. Moreau, which, in some sense, was sort of a it was a screed against vivisection and therefore. Mm -hmm. anti-vivisectionist literature i guess in in a sense and dickens was um, was against vivisection but it's yeah it's really funny it's a very funny story like i mean it doesn't seem like something that would be funny yeah but the way it's written is sort of clinical detachment and then and then it's like we did this with the legs we did this with the yeah. ears oh no mm -hmm. the owner showed up um yeah <laughs> And oops, it, it, the, the dog reminds her of her ex-lover. Oh, crud. Oh, boy. Yeah. And, and, and not only do they vivisect the dog, but they use kitchen implements. They say they have a uh, knives and forks and cutting board. And that's how they go about it. Oh. And, uh, and there's a whole thing about trying to get the dog to, um, to sniff, uh, I think it's prussic acid or something, to put it to sleep. You know, it's, it reminds me of uh, Lewis and Clark. 
they were they were traveling through North America and their diaries are quite dramatic. And mm. there's a there's a they keep talking about running into grizzly bears and at one point they're like, I believe we've had enough of grizzly bears. <laughs> it's like it's like it's such a polite way to say it. like it's terror. It's a nightmare. Every time they run into a grizzly bear, something horrible happens and they're like, I I believe we've had enough of those. <laughs> There, there are actually uh, bears in in mud fog as well. Um, ah. <laughs> dancing bears. Um, I believe they are uh, begging on on curbsides because uh, they're they're talking about this problem of of, of out of work dancing bears, um, and it ties into bear oil. I believe that was used for something, um, but there were bears and pickpocketing dogs. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Uh, As I said, he's written about everything. It was ahead of his time. Yeah, very much. Um, Also very much a product of it. Again, just to bring up that moment last week when I was just reading that excerpt from Bleak House, it's just like, man, this is why I studied him. (laughs) Because it's just so much to unpack. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Uh, Leaning back to that, again, we know from what you've said that Dickens was open-minded about spontaneous human combustion, given the time and the knowledge uh, that people had at the time. But do we know much about whether he was more of a skeptic or a believer? He certainly wrote about a lot of these kinds of paranormal um, stories like ghosts in A Christmas Carol. But do we do we know much about where he stood on those Uh, topics? In terms of religion, I think he was quite hard to pin down specifically. Um, He was, you know, I think he was just generally um, religious and had the you know general victorian beliefs i don't nothing i can recall really sticks out i'm trying to and i'm sure there are like dickens scholars just shouting at me right now um but i have to be like no no i'm very i study very early dickens (laughs) and here i go bringing up bleak house (laughs) um 
there's a but it's a great example i think of where he stood with religion he wasn't there's these two characters one is you know does letter writing campaign sort of thing to raise awareness for starving kids in africa something to that extent and then there's another one that evangelizes so much that she goes into the house of this abusive couple and she just forces spirituality on them and the guy is like are you serious like the husband is really like are you serious right now so he was seemed to be really against that sort of blatant evangelism he he doesn't really make many firm religious statements so i think when it and i i keep bringing up spiritualism and religion and stuff like that because i think in the victorian period they're still quite intertwined and i think where he falls in terms of believing in things like ghosts and spontaneous combustion probably has its roots in where he kind of sat religiously. And since he's kind of, you know, just generically religious, I guess, and this is this is just me postulating, but he was also incredibly theatrical. Um, oh, wow. I think if he wasn't an author, he would have been an actor and probably a good one. And I think... I think that kind of opens you up to a lot more fantastical things. And so I would postulate that he would probably be more open to things because of his theatrical nature. Or he'd be open to including them because of his theatrical Mm. nature. Um, But again, I think because it is kind of difficult to state, you know, where he was on a religious side and therefore that and that's kind of as i said tied up with you know what you would believe i think i think it yeah i i think those kind of moments are more you know fantastical in a sense that he just you know he was so theatrical he loved the stage mm-hmm. i mean he did readings of his own works until you know he practically gave out from exhaustion um and he would do all the voices and um he was so into it I think it comes down to theatricality and, you know, how how exciting maybe it was. That makes sense. He didn't live long enough to have his voice recorded, though, right? No, no. Sadly, um, he died in 1871. Oh, oh he got close. He, he got, got close. close. <laughs> he did. We have plenty of pi- plenty of pictures of him. Um, no recordings. But, uh, yeah, he did get close. And um, one of the interesting things um, is that he was so close to cinema as well, which would have been, you know, insane <laughs> to um, to see. You would have loved it. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I mean, just the a lot of early films were of Dickens' texts um, because he has that pathos and that melodrama, and it's so easy to translate into film. Um, uh, and so Dickens is very much a precursor to a lot of cinema, which is just interesting as well. I'm complete tangent. <laughs> no, no, but, it, but, you know, things like uh, some of the earliest cinema was supernatural stuff, mm-hmm. too. So, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, I, the when I was growing up, I remember reading, this not shock anybody, uh, monster books. And one of the things they would always show is still images from um, Edison's lost movie of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. In my lifetime, they have found that footage and now it's restored and I can show my kids mm-hmm. the silent movie Edison's Frankenstein. It's so peculiar and disgusting and mm-hmm. cool. And it's like, 
it's hard to I can't even imagine what audiences must have thought of it, but um, it's fascinating to me. I think cinema is, you know, kind of my second love to literature, and I especially love older horror movies like that, just because the black and white silence just lends itself so well to that sort of storytelling. Well, I mean, like Nosferatu, oh, yeah. it, I think it still holds up incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Me- mm-hmm. Metropolis, uh, the the silent film Wings. I can think of like lots of other ones. Cabinet but, but I, I but I did want to clarify something. I I feel like when we talked about cryptids, mm-hmm. I may have lost the answer. What what yes. is the actual cryptid in Mudfog? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Um, my my husband said when you go on there, do not go on tangents. You always go on tangents. Oh, we all go. That's how it, our show is literally tangent. The series, so it's yeah. okay. I just have a habit of turning into Tristram Shandy, where I go to tell you know my birth story, and I don't get it get to it till after five. Um, no worries. Um, so, Let me tell you about my conception, okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's uh, if you're familiar with Christian Shandy, great book. Uh, so the cryptid, um, it, it, it's more of the idea of cryptozoology itself. I think in today's, you know, um, approach to cryptozoology and whatnot, we're using terms that we're already familiar with to describe something that is unfamiliar to us. That's something that I really want to want to focus on in the paper I'm giving is this um, is the uncanniness of cryptids, that there is something that we recognize, um, whether it be an animal or a human um, or, you know, a machine even. Um, but we don't have the words and we don't have the science or, you know, to properly um properly state what we're saying um because we just don't know it's kind of like how we don't understand how we don't know most of the ocean um we don't have the words we don't have the we don't have the the research into it we can't we don't know um so that's built on it but i did i didn't want to just you know kind of go off and be all philosophical about it (laughs) so i did kind of take some characters and i said what if these were cryptids the um first one uh well the first two being oliver twist who is from mudfog um and uh nell from the old curiosity shop and kind of compared them to black-eyed kids they're these creepy like very perfect children um, especially Oliver, who is born in a, you know, is, is born poor, is in a workhouse, you know, but yet he, when he talks, he talks in perfect English. And it's very, very odd. Um, and I, I, whether or not you'd see it during the Victorian period as odd, I'm not sure. But for, you know, for a current reader, I think it's quite interesting to you know, look at Dickens in in kind of that lens of creepy black eyed kid, um, you know, kind of just an empty vessel. Um, mm-hmm. And almost, I don't want to say robotic, but um, very close to that idea that your, um, like, your, your birth is, assigns you, you know, um, your um, status. So your, so because Oliver was technically of higher birth, he had a, you know, more elevated sense of speaking. Um, but I kind of wanted to take that 
turn it on its head a bit and say, yeah, I think he's a black-eyed kid. And then there's Nell, who will walk through the snow barefoot and doesn't die till the end of the novel. Um, and uh, I just <laughs> find her creepy. And and she not only that, but she has those mo- these moments where she's like among waxworks and she's described as a waxwork child. And um, yeah, it's just they're just quite creepy. They're like they're too perfect and you wouldn't let them in mm. if they knocked on your door. And I can see why Mr. Bumble didn't want to give Oliver more food um, because, you know, having that kind of creepy child ask for more. <laughs> I'd kind of be like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, now you've got me imagining Fagin with a, a, a passel of automatons. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, comparatively, like the the artful Dodger is far more human than, than Oliver. He's got, you know, a way about his words. And, you know, whereas Oliver is just like, you know, this very well-spoken shouldn't be like that he's very out of place um Mm -hmm. and then um uh then there's quilp who um is the antagonist in the old curiosity shop and i was i was kind of going back and forth whether or not um i kind of think he's like the missing link kind of like bigfoot but not quite bigfoot um because he's described as just a complete animal um and um he's it's it's kind of in that way where they can't quite pin down what kind of animal though he's he's like compared to a dog um but then he's also like he I'm, I'm looking at the description now it's just so um it says um what added most to the gr- grotesque expression of his face was a ghastly smile, which constantly revealed the few discolored fangs that were yet scattered in his mouth and gave him the aspect of a panting dog. His dress consisted of a, high, of a large high-crowned hat and worn dark suit, a pair of capri- uh, capacious shoes, and a dirty white neckerchief sufficiently limp and crumpled to disclose the greater portion of his wiry throat. His hands, which were of rough, coarse grain, were very dirty. His fingernails were crooked, long, and yellow. I mean, if wow. that's if that's not an animal, <laughs> beastly, yeah. I just want to add too that if Dickens didn't blatantly write about cryptids and monsters, that he certainly wrote a lot about monstrous people and monstrous characters in his oh, books. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the texts I used for. Um, my PhD was uh, John Kerry's violent effigy. He really goes into depth about Dickens is very animalistic, very violent characters. You also see it in like Little Dorrit's um, Rigaud, who was, just to give you an idea of what the character was like, he was played by Andy Serkis in one of the most recent adaptations. And Andy Serkis is like, you know, the character actor to go to. And that's kind of how that character was described, like a very animalistic, very much animal in a cage at the start of the novel. And he climbs buildings and... A complete circus performer. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think I, I wanted to focus on, you know, those sorts of um, monstrous characters in, in, in cryptozoology, but also, you know, focus on the overall um, just concept of, you know, um, why do we study cryptozoology and why, how that kind of relates to, you know, anxieties that we have 
today and anxieties that mm-hmm. were present in the Victorian period. I know I know one of the things like that people get caught up in this sort of argument about uh, literature as art versus literature as business. And mm. Dickens uniquely, I think, for that period seemed to really do both. He was clearly writing literature, but he was also doing it for the people and spreading it in innovative ways. Can you talk yeah. briefly about how Dickens promoted himself? Yeah. Because I know I mean, we kind of we ran low on time, but I want to make sure we cover that. He's quite modern. I like to think of Dick- Dickens as his own PR machine um, before PR machines, um, because he pretty much was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And I'm go- and this is who I am, and I cannot waver from that in a way. So um, obviously we know about how he wrote, you know, serialized novels. And I think the mythos today is more of this successful, constantly successful author, whereas that's not quite true. Uh, he had duds. He had times of, you know, economic anxiety because, you know, Barnaby Rudge didn't do well you know, and they didn't perform and he had arguments with, you know, other printers and, you know, he had a whole copyright thing because his his novels were being pirated, you know, into the States, you know, there were a lot of, you know, um, copies and whatnot because copyright wasn't a thing. Um, But he was very much an early proponent of that, of, you know, taking ownership over his work. And of course, the serialized novel was a huge sign of, an evolving readership because the education was becoming more prevalent among all the classes. So he had more readers. So it was a huge reading public. It was um, uh, bigger than ever before. And yeah, he just, he promoted himself. I mean, when I talked about him doing readings, I mean, they were just as much as promotion of himself as it was, you know, fun for him to do. Um, And people just ate it up. Um, and, you know, it kind of, it overshadows a lot of the nastiness in his life, how he was able to kind of, you know, emit this, you know, like Titan-like image, um, that has lasted into, into today, which I think is, you know, pretty, um, pretty intense. I mean, good on him for that. (laughs) Um, a lot of people point to Oscar Wilde as being the first, you know, quote unquote celebrity. But I think Dickens was the quote unquote first PR person. He he knew how to work the news. Um, Yeah. He knew how to use it to his advantage. And I think, you know, even if he had duds, he was constantly churning out work. Um, And, you know, I just I can't imagine what it would be like to know him because he seems exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. he was remarkable. We've, yeah. we've just got one final uh, question to wrap things up. Yeah. Uh, we just we always like to ask our guests, what's your favorite monster? Oh, yes. So it's like picking a favorite child for me because I'm mm-hmm, such mm-hmm. like I, I I'm such a horror fan. <laughs> okay, I'm mulling it over in my head. I'll, since we're since we're doing Dickens and this is about Dickens, I'll I'll go with the Dickens character, um, and I will say. The Ghost of Christmas Present from from A Christmas Carol. (laughs) I am the Ghost of Christmas Present. Look up on me! I have to admit that was a suggestion from my husband 
because and I mm-hmm. was like way and he and I have to say he was kind of right about it. Remind remind listeners which one that is, which which ghost is. Yeah, what, what does this person look like? Yeah, so the ghost of Christmas present is the jolly spirit, pretty much. If you've ever watched the Muppet one, the Muppet Christmas Carol, like the you know the <laughs> version of the Christmas Carol, he's the one that has the great song, like you know it feels like Christmas, and he's the you know he's you know he's very fun. Um, but what's mm-hmm. not in the Muppets Christmas Carol <laughs> is how yeah. he actually ends his portion. And it's he's standing in front of Scrooge and he opens his robe and under his robe are two emaciated children. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware them both. And it's just like it cuts off all that like merry feeling and uh-huh. just drives yeah. right back down into you know, in it's Dickens moralizing, which he does a lot of, mm-hmm. um, but it's just so, um, I think it's it, creepy. It's, it's creepy. creepy. And then it's it leads scary back... when you're a kid to see in the old yeah. movies. Yeah. And then it, and then, then it leads into the ghost of Christmas past. So you're already kind of off kilter from this. And then it goes into the ghost of Christmas past. I think that makes a pretty good monster. Yeah, he, he interesting choice. With... We've never had that one before. <laughs> yeah, he, he moves you in with joy. <laughs> My brother-in-law is a huge fan of the Alistair Sim version of Christmas Carol. And, and <laughs> I think the way it's presented there is, Classic. as you say, it's this incredibly, it's like a jolly Santa character who's also carrying around two starving children wrapped around his legs. It's yeah. so creepy. Yeah. You're right, yeah. you're right. It's jarring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The well, nice that, one. Well, I think you've whetted our appetite for more Dickens. So uh, if you want uh, to throw a few uh, suggestions out, I'll put them in the show notes for uh, some reading if people want to get a better view of Dickens beyond just A Christmas Carol. Yeah, Um, yeah. And uh, I also link to an article about, uh, there's a a really fun article I read about seven ghost stories by Dickens that Mm -hmm. were not A Christmas Carol, and they're quite cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Haunted Man and Ghost Bargain. That's uh fantastic yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, it's got, it, it, yeah it's, i just the idea of all this interplay between uh irving and dickens and poe which leads to um the mr james type christmas stuff yeah. that we know, or, or those ghost stories we think of as edwardian and, and victorian uh just oh i love this interplay it's so cool so thank you for sharing this it's time, great time with of you for this yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no thank you for having me <laughs> monster dog You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Liz Savage about Charles Dickens and how his writing deals with the supernatural, the weird, the strange, and how it might even be viewed through the lens of the cryptozoological. She'll be participating in the International Institute of English Studies Dickens Day event on November 26, 2022. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network home of such shows as Fork in the Road, I Know What Scares You, and When Things Go Wrong. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Karen Stolzno's new book, Fisher's Ghost and Other Stories, is out now, just in time for Halloween. From Monster Talk's co-host comes this anthology of supernatural short fiction, The characters within these pages include lovelorn ghosts, 
restless spirits, deceptive demons, and deeply flawed humans, their tales all told with a twist. These unsettling stories are guaranteed to give you nightmares. Fisher's Ghost and Other Stories is available for ebook and in paperback from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online booksellers. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones, and we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. We appreciate your listening and hope you learned something fun and useful today. Monster House presentation. And that's the style. And then that's the, they had no anesthetic. Let me just say it that way. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.